Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risks. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This episode was recorded from a live event that the Progress Network hosted on June 10th, 2021. We hope you'll find it informative. We're taking a short break for the holidays, but we'll be back in a few weeks with more bonus episodes. Hi, everybody. I'm Emma Varvalugas. I'm the Executive Director of the Progress Network. And you're here with us tonight at It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, Rethinking Today's Capitalism. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our panelists, and they are... Both panelists and hosts tonight, they're going to be uh, interviewing one another, which is going to be very fun. So tonight we have with us a Progress Network member, of course, Jillian Tett. She is chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large stateside of the Financial Times. Uh, she's the leader behind the editorial initiative, Moral Money, which covers the shift into responsible and sustainable investing. She also has a new book out, which I believe just came out on Tuesday, so very hot off the press, and congratulations, Jillian. The book is called Anthrovision, A New Way to See in Business and Life. And if you're in the business world, you may know that it's very focused on technology and data analysis. Uh, here, Jillian is, is suggesting using a different lens, an anthropological lens or human lens, um, as a way for businesses to operate. And our second panelist slash host is our founder, Zachary Carabell. Uh, Zachary is an author and investor. He's been ringing the sustainable capitalism bell for a long time now. Uh, he writes for many different publications on economics, on history and politics. Uh, he also has a new book out. It's called Inside Money. Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power, which covers the history of the financial firm Brown Brothers Harriman. And it's a firm that has many lessons for us when it comes to the capitalism that we find ourselves in today. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Zachary and enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Emma. So hi, Jillian. Hey, um, great to be with you. We normally meet over dinner with wine. And So um, this, this is our virtual. <laughs> our, our virtual our virtual dinner conversation but we thought it would be fun uh, for, for those of you who've been to a few of the progress networks we've done events we've done before they've been more traditionally panels and me leading a discussion with various and sundry and Jillian and I thought that given um, that we both have books out in a, in a month-long period Jillian's book being this book in startling and bright red 
and and then and then my book over here in the in the dark and the black. Oh, Zach, you've got to show your book up to the camera. And, I know, but it's I, I've got to I've got to reach reach around and and have it for the video. So we have we have the the two books here, <laughs> and we thought it would be I can do it like this. We thought it would be fun to engage in a book to book, author to author conversation between friends, given the uh, unusual overlap, not really in topics, but kind of in sensibilities. So. In, in very different ways, we've both written books that attempt to shed some light on the nature of capitalism and the nature of the societies that we've come to live in. It, Jillian's is a bit more broad-based than just the lens of capitalism, given her writing over the years for the, for the FT and other things. There's a lot in there about, you know, is the capitalism that we currently practice the one that we should, could? Is there a more optimal and better version? And that, too, obviously, is a good progress network as we've defined it mantra of let's kind of look at the world not just in terms of its manifold and many problems but in terms of the things that we might individually and collectively do to lead ourselves in a more constructive direction given that presumably we would want the future to be the sum of all of our hopes rather than the product of all of our fears so jillian anthrovision an unusual topic you have you know this fascinating background which you have described in the book for the first time. And I know that was like a first thing to kind of bring a personal bent into the book. But it, but I think it explains a lot of how you, um, that, you know, that your stance on all the issues that you've been writing about, including the ones in the book, is not just one of the journalist who is always stepping to some degree outside or on the outside looking in, but as an anthropologist. And, and, and you, all, of course, in the book also take a critical eye to journalists uh, and their own culture. But so give us just, you know, for those who have not read the book um, and given that it's out for a couple of days, that may be a good number. And for those who will read the book, which will be everybody and and all of their cousins and parents and, and fathers, Father's Day is coming up. So that's an important <laughs> thing to remember for Anthrovision. Um, so tell us a little about Anthrovision. What 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 is it? Sure. Well, thanks, Zach. And I should say that it's brilliant to be doing this talk with you because in many ways, I think your book which is brilliant, um, is a kind of almost ethnography, almost an anthropological exercise in itself, looking at a bank through time and looking at the culture. And culture is at the center of your story. Um, but in terms of my background, my background is totally weird. Um, as many senior bankers and corporate executives have told me over the years, um, people look at me and say, well, I've been a financial journalist for many years. You must have, and if they found out I have a PhD, I'm technically Dr. Tet, um, they'd assume that I had a PhD in economics or finance or an MBA or failing all that in astrophysics because finance and economics have been dominated in recent years by quantitative database, numbers-based analyses. Um, nothing wrong with that, as I'll say later, but that's how it has been shaped. And in fact, I started my career um, in a very odd way. I did a PhD in cultural anthropology. Um, most people who aren't involved in social sciences think that is basically the academic form of being Indiana Jones and going off to wacky, exotic, wild places and studying weird rituals or digging up bones or doing things like that. Um, in fact, anthropology these days is different. Um, from how it started out in the Victorian age. 
It's really about looking at modern societies and looking at Western societies as much as non-Western often. But in my case, I went off to a place called Tajikistan, Soviet Tajikistan, just north of Afghanistan, and did a classic anthropology study um, where I lived for about over a year um, in a community in Tajikistan and went about studying them as an anthropologist would. And anthropologists try and look at human culture and systems by observing them through participant observation and essentially trying to look for cultural patterns and drawing them together in their analysis. Um, So I did that. After I finished my PhD, there was a brutal civil war in Tajikistan, tragically. I went off and originally became a war reporter. um, And then one thing led to another and I joined the FT. And for years and years, I kind of wouldn't say I concealed my weird past, but I certainly didn't talk about it because, as I say, to bankers, it just looked hopelessly hippie, as one once said to me, you know, completely irrelevant. Who goes from studying Tajik wedding rituals to looking at trading floors? Um, And then the 2008 crisis happened and suddenly questions about culture and incentives and norms and values began to become incredibly important. And I began to, if you like, you know, come out of the closet as an anthropologist and talk about how I thought this perspective I'd learned working on the ground had shaped my work as a journalist. And also why I thought it had in many ways enabled me to read finance better than many other journalists before 2007, simply because I was looking at the cultural dynamic and looking at what people weren't talking about as much as what they were talking about. Um, so in a sense, the book I've written, Anthrovision, is an attempt to explain why I passionately believe that anthropology perspectives can help anybody understand the world better, whether you're a journalist or a banker or an accountant or an economist um, or a techie, almost any, any area, you can actually combine anthropology with what you're doing as a profession because it provides a sense of context. And I can't think of a better example than your book, frankly, Zach, um, which shows why culture matters. Because your story about, you know, this bank is all about how culture shaped it and how its distinctive culture put it on a different path from other institutions. But you tell me, so why did you, what made you write your book? It's funny, the culture part, I don't think I was nearly aware of until I wrote the book. You know, when I, when I, I was looking for a topic that would, that would allow me to write about how money made America and then how America made the world and how a particular class of people who made money then sort of write the, the architecture of the global system that we live in, right? the UN, the, the World Trade Organization, the Pentagon, the National Security Council, all the, all the aperture, the world that's been constructed. You know, the anthropologists would say the, you know, the, the first order principles of a lot of the systems we live in, which were made in the middle of the 20th century, were made by a small group of almost entirely, you know, white American men on the heels of World War II. And many of them had made a lot of money in the financial world over generations. And I was interested in how that world came to be. I was much less aware of, and so I was aware of the role of Brown Brothers Harriman, and I was aware aware, as a few people are, people like Prescott Bush, right? The whole Bush family fortune comes from the partnership of Brown Brothers. And I was aware a little bit of Averill Harriman because he was such a figure for decades, kind of an elusive one. 
uh, he would have, you know, very much been someone I think who would have ended up in your your house for dinner had he had had you been doing that when he was around, um, and since saying very little but being incredibly charming, and uh, and I was aware of that group, but I was much less aware of this kind of intense culture of the firm, almost from the time it's founded in 1800 by the father Alexander Brown, and has just been replicated and continued and drilled into generations of Brown family partners and then Harriman family partners, and now a firm that has none of the family really deeply involved in it, but has almost the same culture. And it's funny you mentioned that because when I've I've written a few pieces over the past weeks and done a bunch of interviews, and one of the messages of, of the book is that we could have a better culture of capitalism. You know, we could have a culture where people believe that they those who have gained immensely privately have a public responsibility, that there is a relationship between private gain and public good, and, and that this very elite exclusive class that Brown Brothers epitomized, this WASP establishment elite, nonetheless had a profound driving belief in public service. And it might have been totally self-serving. I think you would agree that you know, one thing you realize when you study humans is that humans are me- messy and complex and nuanced. And when you look for sort of binary simplicity, you, you force a, a round peg into a square hole that you can be selfish and selfless. You can be self-serving and of service. And I think there were all these things. And the system that they made had certainly served them, even if it did some good for the world. But when I've talked about that culture as being important, um, many people leap toward, oh, well, then you're saying we should regulate firms to make them do certain things, or we should pass laws that constrain action. Because those are familiar tools. Culture for a lot of people is this kind of fuzzy thing, right? And I guess I wonder from your perspective, in anthropology, it's not it's not really a fuzzy thing. Well, I think you talk about the famous anthropologist Clifford Geertz, who, who talked about the difference between sort of soft and hard, right? Mm-hmm. Soft and hard qualities. But this has been a real struggle in anthropology, but it's a real struggle in our contemporary culture. And that if you say culture, people are like, yeah, yeah, like whatever. <laughs> what, well, the problem, what, what does that problem, do for me? I mean, you raise a great point, Zach, Green, because you know the problem with culture is if you ignore culture, we all kind of all know this instinctively. If you ignore cultural patterns, um, you are in danger of failing to see half the picture at any one time. You know, if you go into a bank, if you go into any kind of you know social situation, and just ignore the cultural assumptions that bind people together and define a group, um, you know, if you ignore those, then you're not seeing you know what's really happening. And yet, the reality is that defining what culture is is extraordinarily hard. It's like chasing soap in the bath. And in some ways, it can never be defined. It certainly can't be defined objectively because culture is always in the eye of the beholder. So we almost have this kind of black hole problem in social science because we know there's this thing out there that's incredibly important that shapes people, but we don't know how to define it. And, you know, people say, well, is anthropology a science? Well, no, it's in many ways descriptive, it's interpretive. Um, it's very hard to prove anything in anthropology. What you can do, though, is spot patterns that end up being incredibly important and illuminating. And I think in your case, in your book, the way you talk about the fact, you know, you have this company that was started by entrepreneurs, immigrant entrepreneurs, who were driven both by a very strong all-American quest and desire to make something of their lives, you know, to chase the American dream, to get profits, to get um, proper, you know, real recognition and money. 
And yet, right from the inception, they had a sense of both group solidarity. It wasn't about one individual lording it over everyone else, but a real sense of group solidarity, which was unusual. Um, but also the sense that they were involved in cultivation, not harvest. They were reaping for the long term and trying to build something long term. Um, and there's a wonderful passage at the beginning of your book about where you're talking about, you know, the scrupulousness and integrity with which the original founders insisted on behaving in their operations, even when it wasn't necessarily serving them very well. Um, do you think that came out of the Irish values or what or Catholic values? Where did it come, where did it come from? The Protestant values? What? what I mean, what? yeah, they were definitely you know, deeply uh, of their faith, right? These were, I jokingly have said at times, you know, men of kind of ramrod rectitude with a quiet belief in their faith. It's interesting that, and I, I don't go into this hugely in the book, but as a background, um, the Brown family ultimately is is very involved in the Presbyterian Church in New York City. They are the primary backers of the Union Theological Seminary. So if those of you ever go up toward Columbia and that huge tower, um, they they were really part of that, but there was uh, kind of on your on your point, which is fascinating. There was a moment in the uh, sort of later part of the 19th century where there was a near schism within the, the the U.S. Presbyterian Church, and a lot of it revolved around one faction that, that wanted to focus more on God's love, and another faction that wanted to focus more on God's punishment. Basically, a moral framework of is the pathway toward behavior individually and culturally more driven by the threat of punishment or more driven by the belief that all can be forgiven. And it was more complicated than that. And it's interesting that the Browns are firmly in the camp of uh, we should we should ground doctrine and theology in in God's kind of eternal love and forgiveness and not in the, you know, for every action there shall be consequence. Um, Certainly in their business practices, they were very focused on every action having a consequence simply as a, as a pragmatic reality, right? That, that, which is why they were and remain kind of atypically in a financial world today, um, relentlessly, almost obsessively focused on risk mm. and focused on an awareness of risk as being something that should never be out of the picture, right? That it's not that they didn't want huge profit. It's just that they were they were intensely aware of the fact that money is powerful alchemical stuff and that if you mishandle it or you you lose sight of its power to destroy because you're so focused on the power to gain you know you're likely to do a lot of harm and not a lot of good and that's kind of just woven in and remains very much woven into the firm and what's striking about that is how how much that kind of has departed from a contemporary understanding of capitalism you know it's it's kind of a it's it is in it is self-bounded. Not because somebody said, not because there's a law that that, that could be broken or a uh, an excess that will be checked, but because there's an internal check on it. And obviously, I, I mean, I think from some of what you write about, what where, where things get lost is that when self-defined communities kind of lose sight of their own context, right? I mean, this is something well, I think maybe you could talk I about find, that. It's what I find fascinating about your book is that. You know, what comes through with the patriarch and all the descendants is a really strong sense of thinking about consequences of their actions and context, you know, as they actually proceed with finance. And 
one of the ways to define what's going so badly wrong with modern banking and what led up to the 2008 um, crisis is the fact that you had finance, which was very much driven by people who couldn't see the consequences of what they were doing or chose not to see, um, and who'd lost all sense of social context to their innovations. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I first started thinking about this, oddly enough, when I was um, working for the Financial Times in 2004. And by that stage, you know, almost, um, you know, 10, what would be, almost losing track of time. Um, yeah, yeah, 2004. So by that stage, um, you know, a dozen years have passed since I've been an anthropologist in Tajikistan. And, you know, I'd kept very quiet about my anthropology training, but it was still kind of embedded in my brain. And I had just taken on a new job um, at the FT as running the capital market section, so covering finance and markets. And I went down to Nice, or Cannes, um, down the Riviera to go to a banking conference for the European Securitization Forum. And I got into this hall and I sat down in the conference chair and thought, wow, I'm back in Tajikistan. Because it was just a gut visceral feeling. Because I realized that an investment banking conference, in some ways, is a modern financial equivalent of a gigantic Tajik wedding. In that it's a gigantic ceremonial ritualistic affair that pulls together a scattered tribe of people from all over the place that they can reaffirm and rebuild and recreate their social ties. And it uses all kinds of rituals to essentially both reflect a common worldview and reinforce it and reproduce it, if you like. So I sat there in this conference hall thinking, I'm going to analyze this investment banking conference like a Tajik wedding. And several things struck, you know, hit me immediately, which are very relevant to your book. Firstly, that the finances around me, who were specialists in credit derivatives and securitization, were in command of a type of language and jargon which no one else understood. And most importantly, they didn't expect anyone else to understand it because they knew they operated in a pretty rarefied silo and took that for granted. Um, another thing that came through very clearly was that um, all through the day, they kept talking vaguely about how they wanted to have, you know, they were serving people there. They had a very strong creation myth, which was that they had stumbled on this financial innovation that was going to make everyone better because everyone would have access to credit or cheap loans. And so they talked a lot about their creation myth and how it was going to serve people. But I looked at the PowerPoints they put up on the screen, and there wasn't a single face anywhere in any of them. It was all about mathematical formula and Greek letters and curves about risk measurement and stuff. And I watched it all and I thought, wow, you know, these are people who are doing these incredible concoctions and innovations, but it's very much operating in a kind of ghetto of its own. And at the time, to be honest, I didn't realize how dangerous that would turn out to be, um, how the people who were in that ghetto with their creation myth were scurrying around with blinkers and engaging in things that turned out to be incredibly dangerous because they couldn't see the consequence of it in the real economy or even the consequences inside their own banks in terms of having a holistic vision of risk. Um, at the time, I just looked at this activity and thought, wow, this is kind of weird. I want to understand it. But subsequently, I realized that you know one of the biggest problems with 2008 was the 
financiers involved in innovation become a bit like the philosophers in Plato's cave, that they could see shadows of reality on the walls, but not actual reality. And there's a very telling moment in The Big Short where one of the um, people who's looking at the subprime mortgage world, and that's Michael Lewis's wonderful book and their movie, goes out and actually meets a Florida stripper who's taken out subprime mortgages and literally has a kind of holy shit moment, excuse my language, where they're going, wow, this is what's actually happening with these innovations on the ground. And what's amazing about that is not that he saw that, but that so few bankers had actually seen it before that or even thought to go out and look at it, which, by the way, is one-on-one anthropology, to look at the world bottom-up and try to actually engage in participant observation to see what's really happening on the ground, the so-called bird's-eye view. So I think when I read your book, I was thinking, well, actually, you know, the figures in your book probably would have gone out to actually eyeball some of the end clients. They probably might well have known some of them, if not by name, by the 20th century. They would have had a sense of where money was going and would have tried to take a more holistic vision of finance and above all else to think about consequences and context of finance. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. I was running an investment fund in 2008, um, 2007 into 2008. And one of the things that was striking was there were certainly a lot of people in that kind of group that were doing all these derivatives and creating these things that were cognizant of the potential risk. They were they were cognizant that things could get out of hand. And there was there were two drivers going on. One was um, genuinely unfettered greed, right? Meaning that that shareholder capitalism as opposed to the partnership capitalism that had been true well until the 70s and that remained true for Brown Brothers, right? Brown Brothers never goes public. They are a partnership today and an extremely viable, albeit quiet, partnership. Um, but And that meant that, that risk was always personal, as opposed to what it was for many of the people you were you know, in that conference with, where they, they never stood to lose personally as much as they stood to gain personally. And, and in many ways, that remains true of, of multiple parts of the financial system of hedge funds, a lot of private equity, a lot of venture capital. And I'm actually not, you know, I'm not being negative about it per se. I'm just negative about the balance within the system. 
between that and, and more countervailing factors. So there was that aspect of Brown. Um, but there was also not just the unfettered greed part, unfettered because it was structurally unfettered, not because indiv- these individuals were somehow more greedy than individuals had been in 1850. But there was also, they thought they were taming risk. Right? They thought that all these mathematical formulas and derivatives and securitization would disperse risk sufficiently throughout a system that any one thing going wrong would be would be diluted and then we'd be okay. And that's where the Brown Brothers part is interesting because their culture, and I don't know what really explains this, except that it was there from the get-go within Alexander Brown, was there is no escaping risk, right? Mm. That that human desire to control the uncontrollable and tame the untamable always ends badly. And that doesn't mean don't take risk. It means don't blithely believe that you've eliminated it. <laughs> and there was a lot of that going on in 2008. And I remember being at some investment meeting where an investment bank was coming in and trying to sell some quantitative structured product that would, against the portfolio I was managing, um, guarantee almost no downside and provide almost all upside minus whatever the cost was of creating this thing. And I thought, wow, that's that's extraordinary. I, I get to be sold a derivative that tells me that I essentially can't lose money and I can make a lot of money, just not quite as much as I would make without it. And I thought, did you buy? No. And I, cause I remember thinking, look, this was a classic case of something is too good to be true. It, it, it is. Um, <laughs> Second, money made off. Yes. But what I did not realize in that equation is that, is that the people selling that product, the, these investment banks were also buying their product, meaning it wasn't an entirely a process of trying to sell, you know, the rube on a, on a magical product. It was the belief themselves that they had created a magical product. Because when people like me didn't buy it, they just these banks sort of held it on their balance sheets, thinking, "Hey, if he doesn't want to buy it, we'll buy it." And it was born, I think, out of this belief that you never would have had a Brown Brothers. That we have found the formula. We can tame risk. Well, there was this incredible, I mean, one of the things anthropologists are very interested in is creation myth. Um, and the fact that, you know, any society has an elite who will remain elite, not just by virtue of controlling the means of production, the money, but by shaping how people think. And as part of that, some kind of creation myth, creation myth story is, you know, very useful um, in terms of propping up the elite and reproducing the status quo. And I say useful not because this is necessarily done as a plot. It's more that patterns develop, which just kind of happen to support the elite. So guess what? They get reproduced over time. And creation myths are very interesting in this respect. And looking at the bankers, and I tell this story in my book um, at some length, um, looking at the bankers in 2008, or originally 2004, what struck me was that they were this self-enclosed tribe doing stuff that no one else understood. Um, a bit like the you know finan- the priests and the Catholic Church in medieval Europe um, who spoke financial Latin and nobody else understood it. Um, and they had confidence in what they were doing because for the most part, the congregation sat there and dumbly accepted the fact they spoke financial Latin and the congregation didn't understand it, the whole thing being blessed by the Pope. Um, but also there was this very strong belief that essentially... Um, the creation myth was that we've had this innovation wave, we've created these products for repackaging risk, 
Um, we sliced and diced everything. It's made everything safer, as I told you. Um, and therefore, it's going to be fine. And it wasn't a deliberate con in the sense that people were conning others to believe it. They sort of half believed themselves. Um, and the most powerful truths or the most, sorry, the most powerful ways to control things are to essentially create patterns which people are half aware of but not completely aware of. Subsequently, I realized that there were some glaring intellectual errors at the very heart of this creation myth. For example, um, the financiers would always say that they had a mark-to-market accounting system, which means that all the values of things were supposedly marked to the market prices. Um, in reality, most of the stuff was never traded because it was too complicated. So the accountants would basically rely on model-based prices to value things on their balance sheet, which was a complete contravention of the theory and the creation myth. And yet no one saw that or commented on it. And you think, well, that's kind of weird. Why? Well, the reality is we all do that every day in our lives, where we basically avert our eyes from inconvenient truths or from contradictions. You know, we all have tremendous tunnel vision and just focus on a few things around us and ignore other areas where there may be challenges to our creation myth or things that just don't fit in well with the stories we like to tell ourselves. I mean, do you think that um, that there are lessons from your book about how other companies should be conducting themselves today? I mean, do you think, for example, that this partnership structure, having people with skin in the game, is one way to make finance risk-taking in a more responsible way? So before we get to that, I do want to encourage people to, to do, um, as a few people have done in the in the Q&A, if you want uh, questions addressed, we'll try to get to them as, as we go up. So please just put them yeah. in and join the conversation. Um, so look, I definitely think there are lessons. And I, and I am... You know, I want to be careful in that, in that too many people hear the word, oh, there are these lessons we can learn and then hear, oh, wouldn't it be good if, in a kind of a dot, dot, dot romanticized, oh, if if only we could return to some sort of 1950 halcyon moment where we had this elite driven system that had a sense of public service and responsibility that did actually create a much more equitable social contract. You know, the irony of this elite establishment creating a world where the average income of a, of a worker to a CEO is 20 to 30 to one versus now where we live in a much less elite system that is high, highly unequal relative to then, right? Now it's like 300 to one. Um, so lessons for me don't mean let's go back. It means what can you tease out of prior human experience and constructively apply to your present in the hopes that will it will create a more meaningful, balanced, egalitarian, inclusive, affluent future. Uh, and, and there, I think there are a lot of lessons, again, with the caveats of, you know, I, I try to write about a firm whose value system I ultimately admire, but whose actions over the centuries often left a huge amount to be desired, including total complicity with the slave trade, including you know, driving the U.S. government toward imperial occupation of the country of Nicaragua solely because the Brown family had loans to the government that were in jeopardy because of political instability. So, and and an intense anti-communism at the end of of World War II into into the Cold War that that flared almost without enough 
consideration, right? They, they could have done was taking a step back and asking themselves just what the threat was. But as a set of values for the present, and the belief also we're not going to suddenly go back to shareholder capitalism. Uh, I mean, we're not going to go back, sorry, to partnership capitalism. And while, as you write about in Moral Money and you talk about in some of the sustainability, there's a whole emerging mantra of stakeholder capitalism that's supposed to, in many ways, be what a company like Brown Brothers probably embodied anyway, which is that the good of the firm meant the good of the employees. It meant the good of the surrounding community. It meant that multiple stakeholders benefited. They wouldn't have used that term, uh, but they would have embodied its reality. The, the, The problem then is, while I utterly believe that, it is somewhat unsatisfying to people to say, oh, well, we should just have a better value system that drives corporate culture because that's really the most sustainable you know, my, my definition of sustainable capitalism, having been in a lot of sustainability worlds, is people self-governing um, because they recognize the bonds and the connections between, again, their private interest and, and the public good or their private interest in their employees or their community. And I write about in the book the building of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in 1828, which was funded almost entirely by Alexander Brown and his sons. Not funded entirely. It was driven. The project was driven by them. And it's done purely as a public works project because they are legitimately concerned that Baltimore is going to fall behind New York as an economic center, which it does. Mm. Uh, and that the only way to, to save that is to have a better transport network from Baltimore over the uh, Appalachians into the Ohio River Valley. And they, you know, they do this incredibly innovative, somewhat risky project, kind of a moonshot to pay for a steam-driven locomotive on rails, which no one had done in North America and basically had not done anywhere except for a very small test case in Stockton and Darlington in, in England. Um, but they do it not to make money. They, they do it because they think it's vital for the community and that if the community doesn't thrive, they won't thrive. I guess the pushback one could give, and I want to know your thoughts on this, is what do you say to people who legitimately say, Sure, that's great. We should we should also have better education. You know, we there's a lot of shoulds we should do culturally that we fail to do. What are we going to do now? Right? What's what's going to solve it now? And and I do push back and say, look, a lot of regulations, as good as they may be, both in spirit and even in intent, you know, you can't you can't regulate people into moral behavior. Certainly not immediately. Yeah. But companies and cultures and families can clearly inculcate. Behavior that's more imbalanced, but it's a it takes a longer time. I mean, what, you know, when we, you, I'm sure people will push back on anthropology and say this is all very interesting, Julian. That you've you sorry, Doctor Ted, I have to, to <laughs> Doctor yes. Ted. Um, but these are these are descriptive observations. They don't they don't force change. That's an entirely fair criticism, frankly, and I understand if you say that. Um, and they're saying it to me when I talk about the culture thing, meaning that like yeah. part of the attitude is, oh yeah, that it you're entirely right. That would be nice, but you can't codify, you can't codify culture or force culture. What you can do is have an awareness of how culture shapes behavior, and you can also start to appreciate what works and what doesn't, and you know see if there are ways to impart some of those lessons. Um, and I think there's kind of interesting question about sustainability and vision um, and difference between private companies or public companies. Point one, I think your book suggests that actually when people do have skin in the game 
they usually are better incentivized to manage risk than when they don't. Obvious point. But it was forgotten so much on Wall Street in recent years. And it's quite telling that Goldman Sachs, which I think has retained a lot of the partnership culture, even though it did go public, has often been better at taking a holistic view of risks than others. Not always, but often. Um, point two is that when you have private financial companies or partnerships, you do often have, um, at the best, a sense of shared values and a wider sense of community and context, simply because a family is not totally short-term. They know they're going to be around for a while. They're often obsessed with legacy and inheritance and actually building ties in their community. So the story that you have in your book about building the railway, Baltimore, you know, is part of the recognition that a family is rooted in a community and they want to uphold that. So that becomes almost stakeholderism, almost by default or by self-defense. The question that's more interesting is when you've got public companies with shareholders and how you create those companies in a less tunnel vision mode and get them to be aware of context. And that's the issue which essentially moral money at the Financial Times is set up to, to basically to cover regularly. This is an ESG platform for the FT. Um, but it's also a question that people are grappling with all over the place right now because it's very hard to know how to define corporate purpose in a less damaging, broad, broader way. And I suspect you can't mandate a culture shift where everyone starts to pretend to care about the wider public. What you can do, though, is to enforce a lot more transparency so that people both inside the company and outside the company can see what's happening. And I suspect the transparency rather than over-regulation is going to be the most effective way to actually start some kind of cultural shift simply because when people can see what other people are doing, the people who are doing things they shouldn't be doing or they don't feel proud of often get embarrassed and changing almost by default. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. But hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Ever Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. 
The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I do wonder in, in a particularly sustainability world, you, you have sections in the book about um, some of the debates of like the business roundtable embracing more sustainable business practices in a full-throated fashion, partly driven by people like Larry Fink at BlackRock and, and others. Uh, and the pushback to that has always been, well, you know, this they're kind of speaking a patois because it's appealing and it, it, it'll get good press. You talk about Walmart as well. Um, what's interesting about culture, right? Culture is often in our world today, reinforced not by ritual, but by by words <laughs> and by conversation and by the statement of either disclosure of information or the statement of words, right? A, a corporate charter, something they're saying in a in a in a like a business roundtable release. And I'm I'm kind of with you in this that I think the the art the articulation of a value system. Uh, even if it was initially driven by more venal motives, right? We're just going to say this to get people off our back, criticizing us, uh, suddenly creates a framework that's very difficult to back out of. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you've said the purpose of a business is more than just uh, returning maximum value to shareholders, but is actually, you know, to have some balance between the societal good, that inequality at at a certain level becomes societally untenable, all of which, by the way, in, in the Brown Brothers world, would have been a series of essentially unquestioned homilies. Right? It, it has never occurred to them to not be that. And they've mm-hmm. never seen any issue within that framework of making as much money as they can. But as much money as they can was not as much money as they could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and that's what's a really interesting thing. It could, it, and it gets bounded, but it partly gets bounded by words and a value system that gets articulated and then re-articulated and then articulated in the, the, the brochure you hand to new employees. And we're all very cynical about this stuff, uh, but it matters. You know How you talk about things matters and how you talk about them internally and externally matters in a way that I think we, we underplay. There's, a, there's an interesting question in the chat and we'll get some in the Q&A. Um, but you know, you've kind of gone around the world and and looked at multiple different variants of of not just capitalism as it's practiced in the United States, but around the world. Is there any, you know, is are there any other frameworks outside the United States? If you go to like, you know, is London basically the same as New York? Is Mumbai just a different flavor of the same thing as Dubai? A different flavor of the same thing as Shanghai? Or do you see maybe are, are there things to be learned and and gleaned? Well, I think there are things to be learned and gleaned, um, both for good and for bad. Um, you know, I mean, to put it very crudely and simplistically, you know, the UK culture is um, you know, very focused on the city of London. It has been traditionally, but um, status is less defined within the city of London by how wealthy people are, but more by, you know, sort of, I dare, dare I say, social ties. Um, in Germany, there's, you know, more respect and reverence for engineering than sheer finance. Money seen as a means to an end, not an end in itself, per se, 
within the economy. Um, I think the most interesting example is Japan, where I lived for a number of years. And in fact, my first book was about um, a Japanese bank called initially long-term credit bank, Jogen, which then became Shinsei. And um, they were fascinating because, you know, the Japanese um, system essentially had a not state control, but heavily government-influenced financial system for many years, where banks were really just channels of consumer savings being poured into building up of manufacturing. And there was a very different attitude towards money there in that they didn't really have the sense of the yield curve. It wasn't a case of we're going to price money according to risk. It was very binary. We're either going to give you money or not. And the decision of whether to give you money or not really depended on social ties. And money was embedded in social structures and social obligations in a way that seemed quite alien to a lot of American finances and still seems alien to a lot of American finances. Um, some very damaging consequences of that it was one reason why we ended up with a big Japanese bubble in 1990, but also some positive attitudes towards that and a sense of personal responsibility. And to give you a sense of what I mean by that, when the bank that I was writing about, I wrote a portrait of this bank over time, a bit like your book, um, about the, when the bank went bust, as it did in 1997, um, the senior management um, essentially gave up all of their bonuses, gave up their pensions, and went off to live in penury. Um, one of the characters in my book, actually, the book's called Saving the Sun, ended up in jail for a while. Um, and there was a deep sense of remorse and having to pay a price and having to basically indicate that they had damaged other people through their actions. Um, and that was taken for granted in Japan, that if a bank went bust, if there was a financial crisis, the people in charge would pay the price. Well, we didn't really talk about it very much at the time with the Japanese. We just took it for granted. And then, of course, we had 2008 in America and Lehman Brothers. And when the Japanese bankers, who I stayed very close in touch with over the years, um, when they saw what had happened to people like Dick Fold and others, and they had lost their jobs, but they hadn't actually suffered much in the way of financial penalty at all, they were absolutely horrified. They couldn't believe it. It seemed to contravene every single idea of shame in Japanese culture that they had ever held. And frankly, I think that Americans could have learned a bit from the Japanese culture in terms of taking personal responsibility and feeling shame for when financial companies implode because of feeling risks. Yeah, that's very interesting. And the German, the German kind of cultural, more bounded capitalism, right? This idea that workers and, and owners and managers uh, all sort of have a seat at the table and it mm. wouldn't really occur to them for that not to be the case. And again, not you know, not to romanticize that or any like every every culture has its, as you know from looking at it, right? You, you've got your boundaries and blind spots. Uh, but as as far as things to learn about, I want to go to one or two more of the questions. But I do want to totally shift gears for a moment, um, and then we can shift gears back, because one of the things that I created the Progress Network to do was to offset uh, a contemporary kind of one way in which a public discussion happens is through the media and through the reporting of what's going on. And insofar as media has always had 
um, a negative bias. Negative because that is what grabs attention, because human beings crave drama, because the, you know if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. Uh, and, and increasingly now the incentives of online driven eyeball journalism uh, can often enhance that, which has always been chronically there. You, you write, you, you try to shed the anthropologist lens on your on that cohort of which you are both a part of and not entirely. I mean, you you have been you have been as much a commentator of ideas as you have been a you know a journalist trying to report X. Um, is that changeable, or should it be changed? The culture of the media. Well, I think yeah. it's beholden on the media to take a lens to themselves um, on a regular basis. Um, because if you're going to go around criticizing other people, you should basically be criticizing yourself too. Um, and the media, you know, I'm a journalist. I love journalism. Um, I know that most journalists are actually utterly well-meaning and trying to do a good job. Um, they are sometimes hobbled by two things. One is their own tribalism um, and the fact that they often live in social ghettos. Um, and I'm guilty of that like everyone else. I'm conscious of, you know, what a narrow perspective on life I can sometimes get if I just stick with my social bubble. I need to get out and actually talk to people who are different from me. And that's at the core of anthropology. But secondly, journalists um, are working in such a competitive, busy, frantic, efficient world these days, which means streamlined, cut to the bone in terms of resources, that they don't have time to do what is the one-on-one step in journalism, which is to not just listen to noise, what people talk about, but to listen to social silence. And anthropologists are kind of obsessed with this idea of listening to social silence of listening to what people don't talk about, the blank spaces on the map, because that's often more revealing than what they do talk about. Um, by way of example, um, the thing that even before I became editor of the capital market section in the Financial Times in 2005, I had gone on a sort of listening tour around the city of London to see what stories we were missing. And I was very struck then that there was obsessive noise around the equity market which everyone was writing about, and almost no attention paid to this enormous credit derivatives market, which was big and growing, but was being ignored because it was geeky and dull and because it was wrapped up in this language, as I said earlier, that everyone liked to just ignore. Um, So looking at social silence is crucial, but journalists often don't have the resources or time or incentives to actually do that, and that worries me. And I hope that, you know, going forward, if anyone knows a, a you know, philanthropist with a few spare gazillion dollars in their pockets, that we can actually fund journalists to have the time and the luxury of the space to roam, to collide with the unexpected, to dig into dark corners and just try and step back and see the world more broadly, um, because we need that. And not just in finance. I mean, the digital sphere is another area where you've got these, you know, geeky silos of people scurrying around doing stuff that we all depend on, which most of us do not understand at all, where, again, there's all kinds of social silences that we should be essentially looking into. But I wonder, on the negative bias part, you know, one thought experiment for the year ahead is that economically, multiple parts of you know Europe, the United States, and then we'll see outside of China, um, could look extraordinarily positive economically. That doesn't mean those rewards will be well distributed. It just means that 
amongst the moments in the past many, many decades where things have roared economically. This could end up being, you know, the upside of the downside of the pandemic. Um, and and I wonder, you know, there's such a disinclination to treat relatively good news as prima facie, right? Like there's there's always a cloud somewhere that you're not looking at. There's always a dark black swan hidden that we should be paying attention to. But I mean, isn't there a way to say sometimes things go well, right? Not not every good story is a prelude to a bad story. But is there a way for journalism to do that? It's tough. I mean, you know, I have this problem with writing about ESG, environmental and social governance. You know, a scandal sell, stories about sustainability doesn't. You know, it's a problem. Um, I think it's the same problem you face with Brown's Brothers Harriman because, you know, I mean, you tell you tell me why so few people know about the company. Right. It's partly because they're a partnership. It's also because they are deliberately boring and quiet and not necessarily good, but they're not generating scandals every two minutes, are they? No, I mean, I actually, at the end of the book, I write about the fact that the part of the problem is, you know, as much as uh, the Oliver Stone film Wall Street with Michael Douglas playing the Michael Milken, Ivan Bosky composite of Gordon Gecko when he says greed is good, as much as he's treated as villainous in the movie and even the way the culture kind of reacts against them. I mean, Rudy Giuliani's whole career, one of the, you know, the two things he makes his name before he becomes mayor is prosecuting the mob and prosecuting the, 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 the corrupt Wall Street titans. Those are still the people who are in, in a, its own way, perversely the heroes. They may be the anti-heroes, mm-hmm. but they're still the heroes. And the same thing was true with Scorsese's film, The Wolf of Wall Street. You know, you end up kind of loving the Leonardo DiCaprio character. Or if you don't love him, you you don't really hate him either. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's... Look, what, what... I think one of the reasons why your book is, re- is remarkable is that you've managed to create such a fascinating study out of really quite boring people. Yeah, no, I mean, that was my big challenge in this, right? It's like I joked when doing the book that it was basically like writing a history of Zelig, that at every important moment in American history, there's a Brown Brothers uh, Harriman banker in the back row, back left, looking like a banker who has absolutely no interest in being the story, but without whom there is no story. Uh, and, And therefore, telling their story is telling our story. And yes, it is a problem of how do you tell the story? I once wrote a book about that peace between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. And the joke was that must be a very short book. The problem isn't that it's a short history. The problem is it's not history as we've come to expect it, right? Mm-hmm. The lack of conflict and the lack of of, of uh, negative drama is, is a challenge, which is, again, part of the point of the whole progress network here is to say there is a reason to pay attention to the drama of the good as much as there is a human inclination to gravitate toward the juicy drama of the bad. Jim Fallows, who's also part of this, and you know, once said, look, part of the problem, the incentives of journalism is he could go in, he wrote a book called with his with Deb Fallows, his wife, called Our Towns, about how a lot of American towns in an age of huge capitalist disruption are saying, look, we live here, this is our community, what are we going to do to reinvent them? And he said, I can go in and report this story about how West Virginia, former coal mining town, uh, beat the opioid ac- epidemic, found a new way of educating kids and developed a culture that's really going to lead us forward. And I'll post that on the Atlantic and it'll be a 6,000 word piece and it'll get, you know, 25,000 hits. Or I can write a 750 word response to one of Trump's tweets 
in 37 minutes and post it on the site and it'll get half a million hits. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's just the nature of human energies, right? Uh, one final question before we go, because I think it's a really important one is a few people have asked, okay, this is all fine and well, but what can anyone do <laughs> other than a process? And maybe that is the answer. Maybe both of us are sort of saying, look, as, as, uh, unsatisfying in the immediate that the answer is put it, adopting a different process, a different sensibility, right? A lot of your book is about the sensibility of how you approach knowledge and analysis as much as it is about any particular answer. I think trying to adopt lateral vision, not tunnel vision, trying to ask what is the silence in this situation? What am I not hearing rather than the noise that I'm actually obsessed with? Trying to think about consequence and context of any business situation. Um, I think those are the key elements we need. Um, individuals can embrace it. Um, they can encourage their companies or workplaces to embrace it. Um, and I think that's really where our two books meet because that was one of the threads that came through in your account of your bank, um, or the story of Brown's Brothers Harriman, um, which I think is fascinating. And no, you can't just take, you know, a McKinsey style, you know, five bullet point PowerPoint and explain exactly how we can all try and be like that. Um, but you can actually bring out some of the lessons and ponder on how we're living now. And the last point I'll make is that actually, I think instinctively many people recognize this. I think that in many ways, the rise of the sustainability movement and environmental social governance is absolutely about a search for lateral vision, not tunnel vision. Um, that's what stakeholderism is. And so I started off by talking about my weird background as an anthropologist. When I was at college studying anthropology, anthropology students were a completely different social tribe from people who wanted to become grown-up bankers or economists or financiers. Um, I mean, what did you study at college? Were you in finance then? Because if you were, we wouldn't have ever talked to each other. And I really didn't think the two worlds would ever meet. And yet, I joined the Financial Times, wrote about finance as a journalist, discovered that those social perspectives were very useful. And then, completely to my surprise, have now lived through this rise of the sustainability and ESG movement, where in a sense, all those bits are coming together. And it's a rather nice demonstration how sometimes life comes full circle. No, it's true. And it's funny, I mean, as we end, um, I studied history, I got a PhD in history and international relations. And so as much as I've had this career in finance, I've been in it, but I've never been of it. And, And kind of in the spirit of your book, right, there's always been an awareness of this is a particular culture with a set of rules and those rules are constructed and they are often arbitrary. And while they may make sense, they're also not sacrosanct. And I think for me, what everyone can do is it's as much taking both a critical, but also compassionate eye towards systems that, that we are a part of and that we can change. And, and I, I, I feel at times I can sound sort of hopelessly idealistic and utopian about these things but increasingly, I'm just going to embrace the hopelessly idealistic and utopian about them because, you know, the ability for each of us to recognize our agency of change, uh, which I know is a kind of a patois today, but I think is also true. And part of that means um, being aware of systems, being aware of human limitations within those systems, which you write about so eloquently, uh, and then being able to use that sensibility to nudge them insofar as you can within whatever, whatever sphere you are in. 
So we are at our, our designated witching hour. Um, I've had more fun having this conversation than, than many, although I shouldn't say that. I should just say, you know, every event, like every <laughs> child is. So it's Doc, Dr. Carabel and Dr. Ted. <laughs> Dr. Carabel and Dr. Ted. We can, we can bet that will be how we address each other henceforth <laughs> in, in well, any situation. Night, so it's definitely time to be informal, but thank you, Zachary. It's been great, Dr. Carabel. Really enjoyed it. And Thanks to everyone who's been watching. It's been terrific to have you guys part of the debate. And thank you, Dr. Tet. And thank you, uh, uh, Ms. Emma Varvalukas. And uh, this will be posted on YouTube. Uh, if you have subsequent questions, you can contact us through our site. And maybe we can engage people in that conversation afterwards. Emma, do you want to do you want to lead us out? I only regret that I'm also not a doctor. But thanks, everyone, for joining me. So thanks, everybody. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Barbalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.